Dogma Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll and doing his best to keep us laughing while we all stay at home and plank the curve. It's Duff McKagan and the joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. Uh, yeah, you know, I've been working out a ton lately. Uh, just a ton. And I'm, it really must be paying off because every time I walk away from a group of people, they say, what an ass. Okay, thank you very much. Goodbye. I got to give it to I told them that uh, they must like my asshole. <laughs> but that was a good one. And we could all use some laughs right now. I know we're all going a little stir crazy being locked down at home to stop the spread of coronavirus. I know a lot of you guys are stressed about your work situations and disruptions and changes to your regular life. So I am here to entertain you, give you a little escape, a little fun, something to think about, not just with Talk is Jericho twice a week, but also blowing it out live every weekend on the Saturday night special Come join me for virtual drinks, stories, sing-alongs, questions and answering, all that stuff. Facebook Live and YouTube Live. Now I added that. I've got some fancy pants uh, software after my Frankenstein setup with Kevin Smith that we did last Saturday. Still uh, went great, but we have a new, uh, new way of doing things now on Facebook Live and YouTube Live. We're going to do that at 9 p.m. Eastern this Saturday night. Let's have some fun while we're all, all home here, staying home together. And if you can't join me live on Saturday night, you can always see what you missed on Facebook or YouTube the next day. And then this summer, hopefully you can come have some fun with Fozzie on the Road, Save the World Tour. Still set to start in July. Hopefully we'll be up and running by then. FozzieRock.com, all rescheduled dates and ticket info. Uh, remember, if you already have a ticket from one of the other shows, hopefully you can make the new date. If not, you can turn your ticket in. So as of today, July 10th is in Columbus. Then we go to Grand Rapids, Joliet, Indianapolis, uh, the Rock Fest in Kadot, Wisconsin, Harrison, Ohio, Flint, Michigan, Angola, Michigan, Belvedere, Illinois, Fort Madison, Sioux Falls, Minot, Sturgis, October, uh, August 20th in Lancaster, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Buffalo, Baltimore, Johnson City, Chattanooga, Charlotte, Nashville, September 3rd, Savannah, Georgia, Tampa, 98 Rock Fest, Orlando, Earth Day, Birthday, September 5th. We better be up and running, ready to rock and roll. Kiss Cruise, October 30th. Lots of stuff coming up. All ticket and VIP information at FozzyRock.com. Come see us uh, rock. Come see us beforehand uh, at the meet and greets. We play a a mini concert for you. We have a lot of fun. And today, we're also going to have some fun, but it's a little bit bit serious fun today as we hear about the wickedest man in the world, Mr. Crowley, the black magic occultist Aleister Crowley, who's been a huge influence on rock and roll. Jimmy Page, David Bowie, Rolling Stones, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and of course, Ozzy Osbourne. Why are these rock and rollers so fascinated by Mr. Crowley? And who exactly is Mr. Crowley, Aleister Crowley? Well, Kevin Eustace, our friend from the Let's Talk About Ghosts podcast, who's on uh, Talk is Jericho at Halloween, talking about paranormal rock and roll stories with the Beatles. He's also a Mr. Crowley expert. He's back today to talk about Aleister Crowley, all the black magic and occult... uh, occult things that Crowley was into and how he became such a figure in rock and roll. So let's start with Kevin Eustace and Mr. Crowley on Talk is Jericho now. So one of the uh, most intriguing names in pop culture, especially in rock and roll, is the name of, of Mr. Crowley, Aleister Crowley sometimes known as the wickedest man in the world. Bring it back, Kevin Eustace, uh, from We Need to Talk About Ghosts podcast, who was with us uh, a few months ago for the Beatles Paranormal Show, which was awesome. And you actually had the idea to delve uh, into the, the life and 
rock and roll connection of Mr. Crowley. Yeah, I certainly did, Chris. Um, thanks for having me back on. And uh, I will say that unlike the Paranormal Beatles episode, this I mean, that was all like just ghost stories, as you know, and it was all a bit fun. But this is a really dark topic and genuinely researching it. It feels pretty dark and ominous when you're going about it. A very interesting cat. Yeah, I kind of, you know, we, we know about Mr. Crowley to a certain extent. And it's funny, I think the first thing, because I was, you know, doing my typical minimal amount of research, but reading through <laughs> as much of his Wikipedia page as you can and knowing a lot of these stories. But I, I think one of the, the, the biggest things right off the bat is that a lot of people get Mr. Crowley and Anton LaVey confused. Think it's the same guy, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Anton Lavey was more uh, the Church of Satan, wasn't he? Um, whereas Crowley, I think he was influenced massively um, by Crowley. I know that. Funny enough, from looking at it, you know, Phil Anselmo, his pseudonym. Funny enough, uh, when he was doing some side projects away from the band, was uh, Anton Crowley. So <laughs> he actually merged them to himself. Yeah, I think the difference, because especially when you see. A picture, and I'm sure everybody is going to go Google this now, but when you see a picture of Anton LaVey, he looks like a typical, you know, Satanist, like bald head, goatee, mean looking dude. And yeah. and Aleister Crowley, however, basically just looks like an old Englishman, like Winston Churchill or something along those lines. Yeah, he does. He looks like a bit of a politician, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and it's an interesting one because, you know, before we go into the uh, the realms of the rock and roll side of things, I think, although the, the likes of me and you, and more than likely most people who listen to your show because they're into rock, I imagine, and things like that, they'll be slightly aware of Crowley as well. But um, it's interesting to know a lot about his, uh, his upbringing and stuff. And, you know. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about that. All that sort of stuff. So to to start from the beginning with him, really, he was obviously um, into the occult, but he was born in 1875 to a really wealthy family. They made their money brewing ale and selling it like alcohol. Um, his dad actually retired before he was born and he became a preacher. He was uh, like a religious man and Alistair Crowley worshipped his dad until his dad died when he was 11. Um, and that was a massive turning point in Crowley's life. But obviously his dad dying then made Alistair very, very wealthy because he inherited that entire empire. Gotcha. And with that, yeah, he kind of, he, he started then rebelling against the Christian things he'd been getting taught, um, started smoking, drinking. As he grew, grew older, he started sleeping with prostitutes. Uh, he was sent off to boarding school to try and sort him out and straighten him out. And there he took up an interest in mountaineering, which played a big part in his life. It does like weird little quirky things about him where you just assume he goes on and worships the devil and does loads of evil spells but like he was one of the first people to try and climb k2 you know and he's a massive mountaineer all that sort of interests so then he goes to cambridge university where he studies english and philosophy becomes more established as a mountaineer goes to the alps the wetterhorn things places like that um and now when he's 22 years old in, in 1897 he goes to russia allegedly to start a diplomatic career but there's rumours that he was actually recruited from the British uh, by the British Secret Service in Cambridge. And that kind of sticks with him throughout his life, this idea that he was also a spy, um, which stands out. Yeah. Now, interest, that same year, he becomes really ill and he starts questioning his own mortality. And this is what brings him his interest really massively up into the occult. And the next year, he joins the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And this is kind of like a key moment in Crowley's life where he starts now looking towards the dark, if you like. 
And it's it's what that is, the Golden Door, it's a bit of an offshoot of the Freemasons. They've got rituals, magic, the paranormal. And the members have included, and included at that time, people like Arthur Conan Doyle, who obviously wrote Sherlock Holmes, um, the, the poet W.B. Yeats, uh, Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula. Yeah, yeah. He's a member at the time. And um, whilst he gets, um, whilst he's in that order, he then uses some of his massive wealth to buy a house to do his spells in, Boleskine House, which is on the lakes, uh, it's on the shore, sorry, of Loch Ness, which we will come back to later because it plays a big part in the tale overall of Crowley. But uh, interestingly, Boleskine's actually built on a burnt-out church. There were, apparently the congregation were inside when it burned to ashes, and then they built this house on that site. So that's, you know, that's not nice in the first place, obviously. Right, right, right. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, and, and anytime you just hear the name Loch Ness, it's such a, you know, highly spoken about area because of, of the monster and because of Nessie, but just the whole area, it's, it's a very creepy area to begin with. Uh, so, it, of course, he would live on the banks of Loch Ness. Why wouldn't he? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> It's like, he's kind of like um, how Eddie Izzard always describes it as kind of like, ooh, wah, 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 that sort of feel about the house, you know, <laughs> very yeah, mystical. Exactly. But he, um, he, uh, he bought the house to do his dark spells, and particularly there was a series of spells called the Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage. Now, in this spell, it was a really dark spell that was meant to conjure up your guardian angel, which sounds all nice, but it required you to spend six months in prep, in solitude, which probably would drive you mad in the first place. And then it also required you to summon the 12 kings and dukes of hell. So it's not all singing and dancing, but this guardian angel business. And that was apparently ideal, but because it was so such a solitude location. But partway through this, he's either, he's either called away to or runs away to Paris and he doesn't close down his magic, allegedly, which leads to loads of future things happening in the house and hauntings and people killing themselves and things like this. But that's probably a completely different episode on its own right, to be right, honest. Right, right, right. After Paris, uh, when he goes, when he runs off to Paris, when he comes back, he, does, he has a failed attempt to take over the Golden Dawn. Um, and after that, travels to Mexico, India, the Far East. And each area, he picks up some sort of esoteric practice and spiritualism. And then when he lands back in Paris, he gets married. Now, this is when we know Crow this is when the Crowley that we know now and everyone knows about starts really to take form and take shape. Because he has a honeymoon in Cairo. And she's into him, like his wife, uh, I think her name was Rose, but she's really into and believes in everything that he's saying and doing. So she supports all this. And they rent a big room in Egypt for the honeymoon. And he starts evoking all these Egyptian deities. Now, during this whole ceremony and period, Rose gets possessed one day and she leads into this museum and shows him this 17th century piece of carved rock, which translates as like the rock of revealing or something. It's actually called a steli, but he takes it as a sign because the exhibit's number is 666. So obviously that's the alleged number of the beast. Right. So he thinks this is a message to him. Now, after this, Crowley says he starts to hear a voice from someone claiming to be a messenger from Horus, the Egyptian deity, and tells him to write down everything that it says for the next three days. He does that, and that becomes his infamous book of the law. And there's three key things that come from the book of the law. First is that Alistair Crowley is the alleged prophet. Second is it's the whole basis for his religion. He'd go on to form Thelema. And the third part is the only law, the one law of the whole religion, will be do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Now, that's obviously the saying that we, we associate with Crowley. 
do what thou wilt. And after he's had that Egyptian experience, he has a child, he goes traveling to China. Again, there's a rumor that it's as a spy to spy on the opium trade, um, which introduces him to opium as well. And he believes that he can work those drugs into his magic. He comes back from China to find his, his child died, unfortunately. Um, his wife's a raging alcoholic. And he puts down the child's death to her neglect. Also, his money's starting to run out, so he needs money desperately at this point in his life. He starts, at this point, a successive organization to the Golden Dawn called the AA. Now, people surmise it's either called, it either stands for the Angels in Abyss or the Antilean Adepts. Now, he kind of combines the Golden Dawn and Thelema for this. Oh, and interestingly, around this time, he starts to spell magic with a K at the end instead of C. Right. And that's to distinguish from like stage performers like Houdini to what he classes as real magic. So, I mean, obviously you have so many different things about this guy. Um, and, and like you said, the, the, the whole concept of explain what. Okay, okay, let me just back it up a bit. What you mentioned about do what thou will, which is basically the the mantra of the satanic religion which, if you really delve into that side of things, and we talked about Alistair or uh, Anton Levey earlier, Satanism, by definition, is not sacrificing babies and worshiping, you know, the demon lord from a pentagram. Satanism is, is Satanism is more of a pagan religion, where you are your own god. Do what you will. Basically, do whatever the hell you want. And that was also Crowley's mantra but he wasn't a satanist per se you mentioned he was of uh, thelema is what you mentioned yeah what's the difference the main difference with um thelema and satanism obviously satanism they they worship uh, allegedly satan you know and but it is it's uh, you're quite right chris when you say that it, it's kind of been misrepresented it's uh, if you look at it it's there's nothing about being evil to each other or being nasty to each other realistically it's you know, it, it, it's all, it speaks of loving each other, but not worshipping people for the sake of worshipping them. You know, it's, uh, I'm not going to say go out on a limb and say it's a nice thing to be, but I don't know enough about it to condemn it as well as, and I wouldn't. Um, with Thelema, the thing with Thelema is, is, is that's Crowley's own mixture, if you like. It's, it's kind of like he's been taught a recipe by people and he's took his own slants on it. So it was actually after World War One. I, I mean, there's an interesting story as he goes through his life before he gets to building the temple of Thelema or taking it over, should I say, he actually, during World War One, he is genuinely recruited as a spy for the British. And he goes off on the Lusitania, funny enough, from England to the US. And he's uh, tasked with infiltrating pro-German groups over there. And it, it's believed that he's one of the people who persuaded the Nazis to torpedo the Lusitania on the basis because that was, he said allegedly on the basis that that would guarantee the U.S. would stay out of the war, but he full well knew that it would have the opposite effect, and indeed did when it was torpedoed off the coast of Ireland. That's what brought the USA into World War One. Now, when he ends up in Paris later on in his life, uh, he decides then that he's going to start an abbey for the religion of Thelema, and he chooses a place in Sicily called Kefalu. and he, he decides that's going to be the place where he's going to have his rituals, his drugs, his sex, sex. Um, spells all of that thing and he, he names this place the abbey of thelema in sicily now at this point in his life towards the end of his life he's a heavy heroin addict he's cocaine as as eroded his nasal cavity and within there there's people who worship him he they're all high they're all having sex rituals and it gets very unsanitary there's like dogs and cats roaming about everywhere people are zonked out in doorways 
And this guy arrives called Raoul Loveday, and he adores Alistair Crowley. But his wife, Raoul's wife, Betty, she hates him. And she's gone on record to say he would force them to drink the blood, blood of a cat and to cut themselves with razors if they said I instead of we. Now, which sounds obviously that's just horrible. <laughs> if true. Yeah, that's right, right, right. Um, now, Raoul apparently drank some putrid water because it was very, you know, it, it was all um, not very nice there. And he died as a result. Now, with that, Betty came back to the UK and went to the press. And a journalist called John Bull is the guy who wrote an article on Crowley and called him the wickedest man in the world and also the man we'd like to hang. Now, when um, Mussolini in Italy got wind of that report, he deported Crowley back to the UK. And that was kind of the last of the Abbey of Thelema. He then survived on donations and kind of a bit schneid on him, really, because he kicked his drug habits. But then World War II kicked in and he was on German medication. So that stopped coming in. And to deal with his asthma, his doctor gave him heroin again, which was like, you know, dished out back in the day. And he deteriorated and died of pleurisy in 1947. So that's Crowley as a whole. And I know that went on a bit, but I think it's important to kind of know where he went and why he went there. You know, that that's him in a nutshell. But now that's him dying in 1947. And now we can start to look at, you know, what takes place 20 years later when we start to get into the rock and roll period of the 60s, 70s onwards. Before we get into that, what, what exactly is it about Crowley that's so so interesting to, to, to rock and roll? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, he, there's there's a lot of stuff talking about him, but you know, it just for whatever reason, he he is the guy that everybody talks about. I know, and you know what? It's a strange one. I've I've read a few things in in the research for this episode where there's people asking that very question, and they're saying, prob- arguably quite rightly. Um, you know, the guy died in poverty in the 40s during the Second World War, and no one really knew of him. He was derided. And then 20 years later, when you get to the 60s, you know, you've got people in the UK, people are still on rations um, after the war in that era. And, the you know, they've had a really bad time. They're looking to come out of something and they don't want to be ruled so much. It's all the free love era and they're looking for alternative ways to express themselves. And then someone... I, I, He must have seeped into the consciousness somehow in the 60s. And obviously, we'll go into some of the big proponents of him. But people started to read what he was talking about and say, you know what? Yeah, why shouldn't I do what I want? Why why should I worry about what everybody else thinks as long as I'm not hurting anyone? So I don't know. But then, yeah, he he carries on through. And I mean, like I said before about Phil Anselmo knows about him. You know yourself. We talked about, um, obviously, Ozzy's got a song devoted to him. Uh, it, it goes on, especially metal. Metal seems to really pull on him quite a bit. Well, maybe because, as you mentioned, you know, when someone's called the most wickedest man in the world, uh, <laughs> yeah. that does kind of, you know, go hand in hand with kind of the the, the heavy metal uh, attitude. But I'll say this because, once again, for me, like the very first heavy metal album I ever bought was Blizzard of Oz. 1980, I think probably was, it, it came out in 82, but I probably got hip to it about a year later, 83, 84. But the name Mr. Crowley, like, you know this name since I was 13 years old, right? Like, I know who this is only because of the Aussie song. And it's such a classic with the super creepy organ intro and just the lyrics and who Ozzy was and where Ozzy was coming from at the time. Yeah. It's very much hand in hand 
with, with, with what Ozzy's kind of vibe was. Now, Ozzy didn't even write those lyrics. The bass player Bob Daisley did. But still, growing up in the 80s as an 80s kid, which millions of us are, we all know who Mr. Crowley is, and we know those lyrics. And, and when we get into it, I want to ask you a little bit more if, if these lyrics are actually written about Mr. Crowley or if they just sound good on paper. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, there's a fair few. It's you, you're right, though. Um, I, I mean, I'll go on to it now. But I first became aware of him again through music, like you're saying. And how old are you, Kevin? Uh, I'm forty. Okay, so you're you're about ten years younger than me. So it's a different, yeah, yeah, yeah next generation of Crowley people. So. Next decade up, arguably, or a few years, about eight years, isn't it? But um, right, right. I, I mean, I was introduced him through music through the Beatles, like we established we established last time. Yes. I'm a huge Beatles fan, like yourself. And um, I sat there with the Sgt. Pepper cover, and as you know full well, you, you look on the inside of it, and there's um, a silhouette of everybody with a number on the head. Yeah. And then <laughs> you can look to a list and say who that is, who that is, who that is. And it was the first time that I, I was like, well, he's the one name that I don't know. And then you do a bit of research and, you know, you find out exactly what it is. Oh, really? You didn't, you didn't know who he was at the time, yeah. Not at that time. I didn't realize that he was on the cover of, of, of Sgt. Pepper until you and I started talking about uh, doing this show and I went back and looked and I was like, Oh, of course he's, he's right there. It's obvious. And I remember reading it, but I forgot about that. Yeah. I mean, um, just to move into that sort of realm, obviously it's really interesting. The Beatles thing, because I know we touched on paranormal Beatles last time, but we stayed away from this more or less, but obviously Pepper came out in 67 and we all, everyone in the world knows the Sergeant Pepper cover. Um, it's obviously one of the best albums ever written, arguably. And one of the best covers. Oh, God, yeah, without, without a shadow of a doubt. I read something on that, interestingly, yesterday, just a bit off topic, which was um, the equivalent album cover cost in today's money around $900 to make, and um, Sgt. Pepper's cost 58000 to make. No kidding. Seriously, yeah. Wow. It's like a big jump, and I suppose it's right, you know, when you think like most of just like paintings or drawings or pictures, whereas that's a full-on waxwork. I think a lot of it, I mean, just not only the graphic design, but I know there's a lot of rights fees or, or, or signatures that had to be got, so they might have had to pay some, you know, some likeness fees and all that sort of thing. Oh, definitely, yeah. I know that uh, Hunts Hall, who was one of the Bowery boys who were kind of a uh, – kind of like a Three Stooges knockoff from the 40s, but they're more of kind of like a, a gang type of thing. And Hunts Hall was the big star, and he wouldn't allow his likeness to be on uh, on Sgt. Pepper. I bet you the uh, family of Hunts Hall is thinking, you stupid f***ing idiot. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's, it's a, you know, as we all know the album cover. Apparently it was designed by Peter Blake and... Um, John Howarth and McCartney's said that he reckons he sketched out how he wanted the album cover to look like, obviously with them in the foreground and everybody else in the background. But all four of them had an input on who went on there. Obviously, George wanted the gurus on there, like uh, Maharava Babaji and people like that. And John was a big Bob Dylan fan, so he wanted him on. Now, all 57 of the key figures on there, the Beatles have went on record. McCartney's went on and said they were all our heroes now, if you look, as you say, top row, second from the left, you've got Alistair Crowley. So the question there would be why. But then if you look on throughout the later career and you look specifically for these like occult moments, then it stands out a bit. And it's, you know, I take all of this with a pinch of salt and you have to, because otherwise you'll end up like going absolutely lunacy. But um, 
There's some more sporadic clues about why. The big one's John. In an interview with Playboy in, in 1980, he says, the whole Beatle idea was to do what you want. And then he literally says, do what thou will, mm. as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. Now, that's a verbatim quote or a verbatim quote from John Lennon, um, which is a strange one because, you know, he's not made that up himself. He's read that. He's clearly quoting Crowley. Obviously, yeah. Um, now, we did discuss this last time as well, this quote, but it's worth reminding ourselves of it. The whole bigger than Jesus quote that John says um, that got them into a lot of trouble. And everybody knows the quote, you know, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. He gets into a load of trouble. They burn all the albums, all that carry on. But the actual full quote um, he's recorded as saying is, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. Which, you know, couple that with the uh, the Crowley quote earlier, that starts to become a bit a bit damning on them, really. Right. You start, I, I obviously, or not obviously, but you would assume that, that John was the one who put Crowley on that. Yeah, well, this is the thing. This is where it gets really interesting with the Beatles because um, no one really looks at Paul. Everyone assumes John's into all the esoteric stuff, Paul's Paul. But, of course, Paul states he had the idea for the cover uh, now, the, apparently, it was his suggestion to put Crowley on there. There's a rumor as well that Sergeant Pepper, as in the character Sergeant Pepper, is Alastair Crowley. Hmm. Because Pepper wrote the song in 1967. Sorry, Pepper was released in 1967, as we know. And it's 20 years since 1947, which was the death of Alastair Crowley. And what's the first line of the song? It was 20 years ago today. Exactly. Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play. So now what kind of adds a bit of credence to this? Now, as I say, you do need to take a massive pinch of salt. Is um, Former Wings guitarist Denny Lane had wrote a biography about McCartney with uh, Jeffrey Gigliano in the mid-70s. And he says that in the mid-70s, both Paul and Linda were heavily into Alistair Crowley and the occult. Now, what kind of ties all this? Well, it, it polishes off the Beatles side of things pretty nicely. Is in the early 2000s concerts that McCartney was doing, when he would play Helter Skelter live, Maka would show images of Alastair Crowley on oh, the screens wow. to the crowd. Now, what's, what's really, yeah, really, and what's really interesting about that is obviously Helter Skelter was, is a McCartney song for one, but it's also infamously the song that Charles Manson claimed was giving him satanic messages to start the, the Manson family. That's right. It was, uh, he claimed it was all a big uh, code for the for the whites to take over on the blacks, sort of thing. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's um, so we'll come. There's a little interesting link back in with that later, which you, I, I, when I got seeing it, I got a bit of a shiver, thinking, "God, this is getting a bit too coincidental now." But um, so then, if we look at Led Zeppelin, say, so. Obviously, Led Zeppelin are pretty renowned in, in rock fans' minds as people who've got a, a, a hand in the occult. So in 69, two years after Pepper, Zeppelin arrive on the scene, of course, and guitarist Jimmy Page dives heavily into Crowley. He's bought relics. You know, he's doing spells. Um, he apparently opened a bookstore called the, the Equinox, which is an occult bookstore um, named after one of Crowley's books. So... He apparently also tries to get the whole band to do this particular incantation and ritual at the start of the career. Only one of them says no, and we'll come back to that later. But when he used his earnings to buy loads of Crowley's old stuff, he also bought 
Baleskin House in 1970, which, as we discovered earlier, was the house he bought on Loch Ness to do with spells. Uh, now, he owned it for 22 years, but only lived in it six weeks. Now, we don't know whether that's down to he didn't like it in there or whether he was, you know, he's Jimmy Page, so he's on tour all the time. Right, right. But he, he was quite overt with his occult interest, Jimmy Page. It's not like with what we just discussed with the Beatles, where you have to look at clues. Like, he's quite outward with it. Now, Led Zeppelin three, the album, in the outro groove, is actually carved, Do What Thou Wilt. And that's that he carved it onto the original press that all the other presses were made from. And on the other side, he carved So Mote It Be. Now, that saying, So Mote It Be, interestingly, is often said at the end of spells in witchcraft. So you'll do your spell and you'll end up with So Mote It Be. Um, now, people have said it's interesting what, what Jimmy Page could have been doing there. Because if you think about like how concentration and will is meant to work with spells and black magic. And at some point when they release Led Zeppelin 3, Jimmy Page will be fully aware that there's going to be millions of records all spinning at the same time with Do What Thou Wilt and So Mote It Be on the back. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's the thing too. When you talk about the whole, you know, as, as time goes by, I always say this, you, you forget like, okay, well, you know, whoever's, there's really no crazy rock and roll bands right now, but you think oh, Guns N' Roses was so nuts and then you go back, well, the Stones are so nuts, but when you get into the, into the real nitty gritty of it, Led Zeppelin was kind of the original, just completely insane rock and roll band. So amongst all the other crazy things they did, once again, the fact that Jimmy Page lived in this mansion on the hills of Loch Ness that was owned by Aleister Crowley, it's, of course he did, why wouldn't you? But the <laughs> fact that he only lived there for six weeks, you start to wonder, I wonder why. <laughs> I yeah, wonder why that exactly. is. There's a cool thing with Jimmy Page as well. He met um, Kenneth Anger at, at the auction house Sotheby's um, to try and buy some, when they were competing with each other to buy some Crowley memorabilia. And Kenneth Anger's like an occult film director and a big follower of Crowley. And he was making a film at the time called Lucifer Rising, which was an occult film. Now, they started to have problems with, um, with the film itself during filming. And his lead actor, Bobby Buziol, I think it's pronounced, or Buzilale, he ran off with some of the film and some of the equipment and said that he'd uh, buried it in the desert and would only give it back to Kenneth Anger if Anger paid his friend this massive amount of money. Now, Kenneth Anger refused, and instead, he cursed the guy. Now, one year on, this guy was jailed for life for murder because his friend, who took the film and buried it, was Charles Manson. Yeah, I know where you're going with that. Bobby Beausoleil. Beausoleil, that's his name. One, he was one of the Manson family. I didn't realize he was an actor. Exactly. I didn't until researching this. And Manson's popping back up again, which is um, is another weird thing. But um, he also then, because it was all going to pot, this film, Page stepped in and said he'd do the soundtrack. But it soured over time and Page pulled out, leading to Kenneth Anger, true to form and true to his name, to get angry and cursed him. Now, this curse, he went on record to say he's pulled off this massive curse and, you know, they should be in fear of the lives. And you could argue, all right, curses don't exist. It's all about what you believe and whether you believe it or not is how much effect it'll have. But over the next five years, Robert Plant had a car crash in Greece, nearly died. Because of that, he had to cancel the rest of the tour. He had to record the next album in a wheelchair. John Bonham and his manager, Peter Grant, nearly beat a guy to death and just about to escape jail. Then, obviously, Plant's son, Karak, got sick and died. Doctors didn't know what was wrong with him at the time. And he died just age five. 
and then Plant left the band, the band because Page and Jones didn't go to the funeral. And then John Bonham goes to bed steaming drunk in 1980 and dies in his sleep. Uh, during this time, Page is obviously absolutely comatose with a heroin addiction as well. So within those five years, they'd, the, the alleged curse had hit every single member except for John Paul Jones, who back at the start of Led Zeppelin didn't take part in that ritual that Jimmy Page wanted them to do. Wow. I mean, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot right there, obviously. Yeah, once again. See, see, all of this stuff plays in together to where if you believe in it, yeah, it's really obvious. If you don't, what do you say? Oh, it's just a coincidence or this, that, another thing. But man, I, I found this time and time again when we've done all of these shows about, about kind of the curses in rock and roll, it always seems to come full circle whenever there's a story about it behind it. Yeah, it's very strange. And I, I, I am, I'm a believer for one in, um, I'm not necessarily going to say the black occult magic devil side of things is, is real, but I do think that the more you believe in something is real, the more likelihood it's got to taken place, you know? Yeah. You know, even just the, 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 when you mentioned Charles Manson, that this should be a, a future podcast that we do. Cause that guy was involved quite a bit with, with the kind of the rock and roll scene in the sixties, you know, and, and, uh, and it's just, it, and, and, and just much like Alistair Crowley is, I always want to call him Mr. Crowley. <laughs> Let's go more into it, uh, more uh, into Crowley and his influence on, uh, on rock and roll. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the third major one that I want to discuss, um, other than the Beatles and Zeppelin, is um, David Bowie. And if I'm being perfectly honest with you, Chris, I, I could do four podcasts about the occult and David Bowie because he is absolutely, I think he's as close to a genuine, <laughs> a genuine occultist magician that's that's ever been in the last 30 years. He's, um, you know, even last night when I was just finishing up some notes, I had like a little weird moment of serendipity. So I was watching some um, Bowie videos and, um, no, Bowie videos, sorry. And as I'm watching them, I kind of felt like really into him and I'd just been reading about all his occult works. And then I turned on the television and there was a screen that was shown that just said Diamond Dogs, which is obviously a David Bowie song. And I thought, well, that's weird. And I turned over the TV station and the man who sold the world was playing. And I was alone in the house at the minute and I've got notes up on wallpaper all around. Honestly, I look like a serial killer. It's a, I've got notes hung up on paper all around the room. And I just, for about five minutes, I got really freaked out. But, um, but Bowie is, as we know, he's a chameleon. He's a genius, a chameleon. He's, um, Ziggy Stardust is, a, is an interesting thing that I didn't realize. Ziggy Stardust, as we all know and love, he only had him going for 18 months from creation to killing him off. And, you know, everyone really, you're associating Bowie with Ziggy Stardust like he was there for five years. And it wasn't, it was just over a year. But if we're looking at Bowie and the occult, you know, it's the 70s. He goes deep into Crowley. And he later say in the 90s that he was sucked into Crowleyism and black magic and cabalism. And of course, he, he in the 70s, like Crowley in his heyday, was surviving on cocaine in the 70s. And his first hint that he's into Crowley comes on the album Hunky Dory. And there's a line from the song Quicksand, which yeah. says verbatim, um, I'm closer to the golden dawn, immersed in Crowley's uniform. Um, now, he also started having photo shoots done where he's dressed as Alistair Crowley. He apparently recited an Alistair Crowley spell to conjure Satan himself in a swimming pool in L.A. 
And in his wife's autobiography, she says he actually can, he succeeded in doing it, which the, the says there was a lot of cocaine involved as well. So, you know, you've got to take that, take that with a pinch of cocaine. Well, when you're looking, uh, once again, he was dressed like Crowley, uh, kind of in an Egyptian motif. And that's very easy to find. You guys can go online and see that right now where you see Crowley dressed up Egypt style. And then, boom, there's, there's Bowie, uh, Bowie doing it as well. And the funny thing, just as a little segue here, is that I had Glenn Hughes on this podcast. Obviously, Glenn's a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and, the, and Deep Purple yeah. Mark II. He took over the vocals for uh, uh, with David Coverdale, played bass, and he was on the Burn album and all that sort of stuff. He lived with Bowie in the 70s, and he spoke about that. He didn't mention Crowley, but he said, you know, we were so off our rockers. At one point, we were even convinced that we had summoned a demon out of a swimming pool. So either no. he yeah, so either he uh you know read that somewhere and just decided to jump onto it or was actually there when they were trying to do that. So either way that you slice it it sounds like it actually happened. It, it does now. I actually took that to say big pinch of salt. Yeah. But now if there's if there's uh, witnesses then you know I might have to readdress everything I've ever believed in. <laughs> But, <laughs> Once again, I think, and Glenn will tell you, he was probably on as much, if not more, cocaine than Bowie was at that point. So, <laughs> right, okay, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. But I know, um, like, so when he was filming The Man Who Fell to Earth, he was obviously really into his coke. He lost loads of weight, and he started to work on a magical text himself called The Return of the Thin White Duke, which is another one of his alter yes. egos, um, as we know. Uh, now, at the same time, he was also working on a soundtrack for The Man Who Fell to Earth, but it all collapsed a bit, and it it all collapsed inwards and came out as one project, and that project became Station to Station, uh, which is a fantastic album, but it's, it's a little bit weird in places. And in 1994, David Bowie said, it's the closest to a magical treatise that I've ever written, and no one sussed it out. He said, it's actually a really dark album. And He's got a point in saying no one sussed it out because I listened to it recently and I'm like, you know, there's not much in this. This is that's dark. It's all quite funky. So maybe that needs decoding as well. Well, yeah. you mentioned. I mean, the whole concept of Bowie is is very spiritual and and like you said, changing all of his ways and all this sort of stuff. But you know, once again, I'm actually looking at these pictures of Crowley and Bowie, and there's no doubt he's even got the same arms crossed and all that sort of stuff so it's not uh it's not too much of a surprise to me exactly yeah right? gosh you know even even i just kind of just browsing some some stuff here even bowie's last record black star they say has some some crowley i'll go on to that in a minute because i've done some this is the black star honestly honest to god you could do a full film on black star but i'll, I'll come on to that i'll just move, okay, go move ahead. back Sorry, on I from, um, I thought you, okay. no 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 it's, it's cool um so from station to station the actual word station to station it's a reference to moving from one station to another on the sephiroth which is the kabbalic tree which is used in magic it's an old jewish thing but people have now transformed it into um to the, for use in like occult practices and in the song station to station itself features the lyrics, here we are, one magical moment from Ketha to Malkuth. They're two stations on the Sephiroth. And for promo purposes around the time, there was photos taken of Bowie sitting on the floor with a piece of chalk and he's drawing the Sephiroth tree and he's wearing a black tight bodysuit with white stripes 
going right through it, like a like in a lightning stripes sort of style. Now, it's worth noting that Bowie said he can't remember anything from this time and was convinced that someone else was doing it through him. Now, as I said earlier, Bowie later on would go on to completely disregard his occult days. When he was in the 90s, as I say, he said he was sucked in and he was foolish. But if you remember when we were discussing Crowley's early life, the thing that got him interested really into the occult and piqued his interest was after he became ill and he started to question his own mortality. Now... Black Star, the last Bowie album, seems to be Bowie, obviously aware that he's got cancer and his days are coming to an end. It seems to be Bowie reopening that door and absolutely running into it. And it, arguably, it's his most occult album to date. Really? I think so. And it's anybody, I, I'll say now, I was going to mention it in a bit, but I'd say now, if anyone's listened to this, after this episode, watch the 10 minute long Black Star video because the occult just runs through it and it runs out of it. Black Star was released on his birthday, January the 8th, two days before he died. Um, now, the video for the song Black Star that I'm saying to watch, it features a jewel-encrusted skull inside a dead astronaut's suit. Now, you could argue it's Major Tom, maybe. Um, you don't know what he's trying to say there. But a woman in black, dressed all in black, takes the skull like a high priestess and lifts it aloft. She's surrounded by girls all in white, like they're in some, and they're all shaken like in some religious fervor. And whilst the lyrics say, in the center of it all, in the center of it all, in like a strange chant. Now that lyric is actually from a Crowley ritual called the Star Sapphire. Now, if, as, like I say, just watch Black Star, the occult streams out of it. And that's one of two videos to watch from the album. The next video, Lazarus, is for me where my jaw hit the floor and I was like, come on, this is screaming occultism. Um, in Lazarus, the video, we've got Bowie laying terminally ill in bed and he's got bandages on his eyes and little buttons for eye eyeballs. And he's lying in bed in this bedroom and on his desk is the skull, the dual skull that's just being used in the last video in this occult ritual to summon something up. Um, it's like, like he's receiving the effect of the ritual. Now, in that room, there's a wardrobe, and out of that wardrobe comes David Bowie, dressed in the black bodysuit from station to station. Black bodysuit, white stripes around it, running through it, dancing and smiling. And it's the same guy that he's referencing there that he said he doesn't remember being, the guy that he was conjured up and wrote the album for him, the same guy that was drawing the Sephiroth. He's coming out of the cupboard. He's chose to dress in the station to station outfit. Um, from all that time back. And then that character in, in the Lazarus video then sits at a desk whilst David Bowie's laying terminally ill and starts frantically writing and scribbling next to this crystal skull and coming up with ideas and throwing things away. And he's doing it frantically, almost as in to say, I'm David's creativity. I'm, I'm, I've still got things left to do. And it's terrifying. It's obviously terrifyingly sad when you know that like, like he's in literally the last days of his life. But um, he dealt really closely with the director, Johan Renk, uh, which I think he's then gone on to do Chernobyl and things like that. But he, um, he said he's a massive Crowley fan and him and David spoke in length about every piece of imagery, imagery that's in there. And in all honesty, and like I said last night, I sat there and watched Blackstar and Lazarus back to back. And 
it's it's still got me now. After when I finish talking to yourself, Chris, I'm going to go off and read more about Black Star the album because that's just the tip of the iceberg on the occult symbolism in there. I mean, the last thing that I read before I started this podcast, and it's something that I'm literally saying this fresh, I've not researched, but I know that um, Bowie and Elvis Presley shared the same birthday, uh, which obviously Bowie would have been aware of. Elvis also wrote a star, uh, wrote a star, wrote a song called Black Star. And with and released a song called Black Star. And in Elvis's Black Star, the lyrics go along the lines of, when I see that black star over my shoulder, I'll know my days have come. And Bowie's going to be aware of that song and its lyrics. But I, I, I will say now that from station to station, where he then went through everything, all his 80s, his 90s, his work with Trent Reznor, you know, this last album, Black Star, is his most occult piece of work in history i do believe it's quite interesting too because i I wasn't aware of that but i I am a fan of the record i bought it when it came out because it's one of those records that came out um as a surprise and no one knew bowie was making it and even though he knew he was dying he made this record as kind of his last will and testament actually even the second song opens with him just breathing which i just love like what a bowie thing to do just record me breathing for a while and, you know, like you said, two days after yeah. its release, release, he's not breathing anymore. But the whole occult tie-in and, and Crowley tie-in, like you mentioned, it's very, very much a Bowie thing. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, the thing that got me was the, the his decision to wear the station-to-station outfit. You know, it's like it, you can't have a bigger nod. to. He's, like I said earlier, he's quoted as saying, station-to-station is the closest to a magical treatise I've ever written. No one sussed it out. It's such yeah. a dark album. And he brings that character back out. No, and th- those videos are creepy too. It's, it's very, very riveting. He's pulling himself out of that kind of skin that he's wearing, or like the the, the 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 kind of the mummy. Like it's just very crazy. It's very strange stuff. It really is. I mean, the, the Black Star video itself. If you if you've watched as many horror mm. things as I'm sure you have as well, and horror films and the likes, I, if you look at it, it looks like. And this could just be my interpretation of it, but it looks like they're using the skull. Because on in the video, Bowie stood up and he stood in a, in a room just off to his left. There's a girl and two lads, and they stood there looking like there's they've got no soul and they're shaking. And at the same time, the, we go back to the ritual and the woman who's holding the skull and all the girls in white, they're all shaking. And it looks like they're trying to put a soul into those three people. You know, like a transference of souls, like on the film The Skeleton Key, where a soul takes over another body and hijacks it. It looks something like that. I may have read it completely wrong, but it sends a chill down my spine when I see it. Another band that, that I had really no idea about until you get into it is, is, is the, the, the Chili Peppers connection, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, I was reading some on the Chili Peppers as well. Um to be honest, I didn't look too much into the Chili Peppers, but obviously, you know, the Blood Sex Magic is, um, is that the name Se- of the album, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, Blood, uh, Sex Magic. Uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Blood Sugar Sex Magic. You know, that's literally a nod to, to Crowley. Blood Magic, Sex Magic, and Drug Magic were his three main ways of, of producing alleged magical results. Yeah, just, I, I knew the Sex Magic connection, but I guess just looking at it now is that... Uh, John Frusciante, who's who's the guitar player in the band who just returned, who's kind of the super weird genius of the guy uh, of the of the of the group, the crazy heroin addict in the past, and kind of the the, the missing ingredient when he leaves. But it's said that he was a, vor- a voracious reader of Crowley biographies and self pen works, and he's uh, inside the emptiness solo record 
featured a number of songs inspired by Crowley texts, including Emptiness, I'm Around, and 666. Yeah, I was. I knew, I knew 666 was one of the songs because that was something that did pop up in the research because I was looking at it as well. You know, we touched on earlier the way it's like, obviously metal bands and, and that sort of ilk. There was a load of things. He came up in, in a list of that I've put together. So just to run through it quick, we've obviously got Aussie with Crowley, um, with Mr. Crowley. You've got Ministry sing The Golden Dawn, and they sample his voice in the song. Maiden song Moonchild is named after really? a Crowley book. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Crowley novel. Um, and then I didn't know this, and I was surprised too. I thought I would have, but I didn't. Yes. Bruce Dickinson actually wrote a film in 2008 called Chemical Wedding, where Crowley's spirit comes in and possesses someone. Well, and let me take you one further. In 98, before he, uh, before he rejoined maiden he wrote a record called chemical wedding which had a lot of i'm not sure if it was a concept record or not but there was a lot of i think it's william blake and and alistair crowley kind of those you know late 1800 early 1900 english you know if you call crowley a philosopher whatever yeah there's a lot of crowley influence in that chemical wedding and then he did do the rec uh, the, the, the 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 movie i forgot about that yeah i've not seen it as soon as i found out about it i thought i've got to see this bloody film like you know the fact it's it's been written by bruce dickinson but it's also about crowley it's uh it's an insane thing but you know we're talking about him in popular culture obviously there's um i mean there's more bands there i'll just quickly run through you've got you've got marilyn manson um in misery machine their song they say let's ride to the abbey of thelema um the coral the english um, pop group they've got they refer to crowley's diaries in a song called liza manic street preachers they have them in a video rob zombies film a thousand corpses he plays um, Crowley Reed in one of his poems called The Poet. Uh, Primal Scream used some of his spells in a song called Star. And obviously, um, what's that thing that's been on uh, Amazon Prime? It was like a big selling thing. Uh, Heaven and Hell. No, not Heaven and Hell. Um, oh, it's got David Tennant in it and some other guy. Uh, I can't think. It's written by it's written by Neil Gaiman, anyway. But David Tennant plays a character called Crowley in it, and he's the devil. So... It's so prevalent in society and culture. It's unbelievable. You 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 you've got to re- now that when you research it, you've actually got to. You sh- it's hard to look away and not see him in things. Well, that's what I mean. Like, there's just something about that guy. For 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 you know, and, and it's not like the the most historical figure, but when you're looking through through the rock and roll, you know, lexicon, it's all over the place, and it's just very interesting to me. Like even. Going through uh, uh, others rumored to be influenced include The Doors, a stone sculpture surrounded by the band on the reverse side of the 13 LP is alleged to be Crowley. Yeah, a bust or, or apparently a bust of Crowley or something. Yeah, and then Stevie Nicks, Crowley's The Confessions of a Drug Fiend was supposedly one of her favorite books. And then The Stones, at one point Mick was tempted uh, by Kenneth Anger to star as Lucifer in the Crowley influenced film Lucifer Rising. Yeah. Is that is It's amazing. I mean that, I mean obviously the stones I didn't touch on because there's um you know there was stronger things right. to, to go through I think. But you look at the stones obviously um Sympathy for the Devil they had coming out. The Satanic Majesty's request. Yeah. So there's and obviously the links there with Jagger and uh, Kenneth Anger as well like you're saying Everyone seemed to have, I don't know whether it was just in vogue at the time, you know, it was like, oh, is that what you're doing? Right. Well, we'll do the same then if that's a cool thing to do. But it's interesting, you know, you're not going to get bigger bands than the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, 
the Rolling Stones, David Bowie. No. And they're all, they've all got links. It's insane to think about it. This one guy. Yeah, the, the one guy, and like I mentioned, who's not, uh, it's not like we're talking about, you know, I mean, Hitler's such an awful example because he was, he was the true epitome of evil. But, you, you know, if there was Hitler influences or if there was, you mentioned Churchill influences or, you know, I don't know, Richard Nixon or whatever, but something about Crowley, uh, even even way, way bigger than, than a Manson. I mean, for those people that are kind of influenced by, by, by Charles Manson, which is so stupid, but, but Crowley kind of trumps all of them. Of course he does, yeah. I mean, it's one thing that the one that really shocked me, in all honesty, be, because of the type of music that I'm, I I know of him, um, was Daryl Hall yeah. from Hall and Oates. Now, obviously, you like I know Hall and Oates for like right. your kisses on my lips and things like that. But um, he recorded an album in '77 um, called Sacred Songs, and he went on record when discussing the album to say that in 1974, I graduated in the occult and spent six or seven years immersed in the Kabbalah, ancient techniques, sorry, ancient techniques to use the will to create unimagined things. I became fascinated with Aleister Crowley because he's the 19th century equivalent of me. Now that that's you know that's not the guy who writes your kisses on my lips. That's <laughs> right. It's absolutely insane. And also on the cover of that album, interestingly, if you look at the cover for Sacred Songs by Daryl Hall, he's given the right hand salute, which is, a, or gesture even, which is every time you look at a picture or a painting or a statue of the goat deity Baphomet, who's always a big symbol in Satanism, that's the, the symbol he's doing with his right hand. And uh, Daryl Hall's doing it on the front of his album. It's... um. I don't know, but maybe there's an answer in what he says there where we're saying, I wonder why everybody that we're talking about here seems some sort of, you know, like a relationship with him. Because if he says that he's seen him as the 19th century equivalent of me, maybe because of that rebelliousness and to try and do something different. It could just be as simple as that. It could be, yeah. I, I just, um, you know, once again, being introduced to this guy from, from Ozzy, I just did a quick search and found the story behind it and said the song was inspired by a book about Aleister Crowley, which Osborne had read and a deck of tarot cards that were found in the studio as the recording of the album was commencing. But here's something interesting. The song helped Ozzy play up his mock satanic image, which we discussed. He said, Ozzy mispronounces Crowley's last name. It is, in fact, pronounced with the first syllable sound like Crow. Uh, when Crowley was born, they scattered the afterbirth because he had a birthmark shaped like a swastika. Have you heard this? Yeah, I've heard of that before. I mean, I know the pronunciations. I mean, it's funny when we're talking about um, Crowley and Bowie because I say yes. Bowie and I say I say Crowley, but and I, I will, you know, I've had, as I'm sure you've had many an argument with people. It's Bowie. I mean, it's Bowie. Well, there, there, there's another there's another connection between Crowley and Bowie, or Bowie and Crowley. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And literally to the point where I was saying to my partner Becca before, I was like, "Listen, I'm going to say Bowie." And then she went, no, it's Bowie. And I was like, all right, well, I'll say Bowie then. And then I've used both throughout this. But um, it's interesting as well because it, it could be easy to think that all of this is just a fad that went through the 70s and 60s and, you know, and we've only touched something. All right, maybe with the exception of, of Bowie, Bowie, um, in Black Star, and that it's all been left in the past. But to bring it up to present day, you can go anyone can Google this, you know. If you look, a few years ago, Jay-Z, wore a hoodie and across the front of that hoodie it says do what thou wilt and with the spelling of it you know that's yeah, that's wilt, the crowd right, state, yeah. statement it's 
Exactly, yeah. It's not just something he's made up. Beyonce's now started to sport a Baphomet ring as well. You can see photos of it. And there's a lot, you can very easily go down a rabbit hole if you Google too much about that. And there's a lot of nonsense on there. But some things that can't be denied is she does wear a Baphomet ring. And in the alter ego that she does, which kind of a link to Bowie, you know, that not many people have an alter ego. Um, but she, in the Sasha Fierce character that she does, she wears a bodice, which is meant to be designed to look like uh, a motorbike front, like with handlebars and stuff. But the pattern or the painting on that bodice is a horned, uh, a goat, sorry, a horned goat skull, similar to Baphomet again. It could all just be a coincidence, like we're saying. But um, given given the openness in the past of Bowie, Jimmy Page, you know, um, Daryl Hall, people like that, it's not beyond the realms of comprehension that. It could be just more than fashion, why they're sporting these sorts of things. So, so just uh, as we start to wind down here, so, so you've heard that they scattered his afterbirth because it had a birthmark shaped like a swastika? Yeah, I mean, in truth, I've read that. I didn't want to touch on it because there's also, there's a lot of things which can't be totally verified, which do, I think, add up to his mystique and his reputation as this wickedest man on earth. So there's the afterbirth being scattered. There's the swastika on the head. Um, there's apparently the fact that his first wife went into a mental institution. His second wife went into a mental institution. He had four partners who all killed themselves. But then you, you look into the... the, the re oh, sorry, and also at his funeral, which is kind of true, apparently, they recited a, a poem um, or a prayer to Pam, which mentions rape and all this carry on. And that part's allegedly true. But the other stuff, you know, when his, wife, his first wife did go into, men, into a mental institution, but she was an alcoholic and she'd lost a child, you know. So there's a lot of things that may not be down to, to Crowley being a, an evil spell, devil conjurer, that people have just said, that's a bad thing that's happened. Let's associate it with him. He's probably done that. You know what I mean? Well, it's funny because 1947, when he was born, the swastika didn't have that... Uh connotation anyways because hitler didn't <laughs> that's a cracking point very good point you've just that's proven right. that one Get wrong that one in one sense. uh just quickly go through the lyrics of mr crowley like i said which when you're 12 13 14 yeah. are uh embedded in the back of your head so it's mr crowley what went down in your head mr crowley did you talk to the dead so did he talk to the dead yeah i mean so most of his um spells were to get in touch with um you know deities and higher powers uh, he spoke to uh, uh, the dead whilst in Egypt. He spoke to a few alleged spirits that had resided in that area where he was staying prior to then getting the messages from the messenger of Horus, as he put it. Um, but he did speak to the dead, but his main focus was dealing with deities. You know, he, he didn't do that much Ouija board work, if you like, or spiritualism work. It was more about getting in touch with ethereal spirits as opposed to deceased. Your lifestyle to me seems so tragic with the thrill of it all. You fooled all the faithful with magic. You waited on Satan's call. Wow. That's a cracking lyric. <laughs> so was there ever, so there was an actual direct connection because you're talking about the God of Horus uh, and all these other things. Was it actually ever a, shall we say, a demon, a Satan, if you will? Did, did Crowley was delving in that as well? Yeah, he was. I mean, I'd, I think he would have only referred to um, Satan by name of like, you know, the names he's known by Lucifer, etc. But like we said, the, the um, spell he was doing at Baleskin House, uh, which took six months to prepare, that required him to summon the 12 kings and dukes of hell 
so it you know he was aware of demons and stuff that he could he could summon up apparently the reason that he was summoning them up was to remove them from his personality so that he would be pure to meet his guardian angel so he would apparently you'd have to conjure up this demon of hell and it would be say for example the demon of jealousy or the devil of jealousy and you'd have a conversation with the devil of jealousy to come to some sort of agreement of how it could be removed from you but it's interesting because the spells that he was using well that particular spell is a derivative of uh, the lesser key of solomon which in truth could be an entire diff different podcast because there are demons within the lesser key of solomon it's basically a conjuration book of how you can get in touch with demons and every demon that's listed in there they again have started to creep into modern parlance and modern society like hereditary deals with paimon the demon that's in that book that crowley would have been using um, you know, all of these demons start to pop out in modern culture now, like Valak, who's in the Conjuring movies. That's another demon from this book. So, yeah, you would have definitely been aware of devils and demons. Mr. Charming. I like this one. Mr. Charming, did you think you were pure? Mr. Alarming in nocturnal rapport. That's a stretch there, uh, guys. Pure and rapport. And I always try to figure what the hell does that even mean? I guess he's talking to uh, these demons at nighttime. He's got a nocturnal rapport with them. <laughs> yeah I, I i i think you're quite right there it's a bit of a stretch it's a very very nice like yeah. poetic thing but yeah i think they're just saying you're yeah. a dark dude uncovering things that were sacred manifest on this earth conceived in the eye of a secret they scattered the afterbirth that's a good one that's a lovely like four lines <laughs> it is, isn't it really it is. and i never knew what, what scatter the afterbirth meant until uh we just spoke about that rumor, so. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Mr. Crowley, won't you ride my white horse, Mr. Crowley? It's symbolic, of course. I don't know what that means. I mean, the white horse is, um, you know, it's symbolic in the occult in a few things, white horse. It's, uh, it, I know that it's got a lot of, like, old English magic refers to white horses quite a lot, and it's meant to be not necessarily a, I don't want to say necessarily a symbol of evil, evil because it's not. Uh, for example, you know, um, down south in England, there's a place called Uffington, and they've literally got a white horse carved into the side of a hill, and that's 3,000 years old. But the, it can be associated with loads of things like fertility, manifestations, all things like that. So that, although it can, it can be associated with the occult, it's associated with a lot of esoteric stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the kind of a, a standard one, but it gets to the big one that I have to ask. I don't have any, any idea what it means. Approaching a time that's classic. I hear that maiden's call. Approaching a time that is drastic, standing with their backs to the wall. Eh, whatever. Here's the one. Was it polemically sent? I want to know what you meant. What does polemically mean? Well, polemically uh, apparently just means um, like to be argumentative sort of thing. As far as I'm aware, it's not at um a magic saying in any way. I think it just means somebody who's contrary, contrary. So it's not a magical word that I'm aware of. A polemic is something that stirs up controversy by having a negative opinion, usually aimed at a particular group. So there you go. Ah, okay. So there you Mr. go. Yeah. Crowley, were you just uh, trying to stir some shit? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or like sending an evil curse, maybe from that's a bad right, place. That's right. I always love that line though. I want to know what you meant. Cause that's basically the whole question to Mr. Crowley is, what did you mean? What were you talking about? So, Well, that's what um, we're doing now, isn't that's it? That's right, exactly. It, it's a perfect way to kind of end off this episode because now after, you know, 35 years of hearing this song, I now have a little bit of an idea of, of what he meant. So just yeah. to sum it up, once again, why do you think Crowley has such influence on, on, on pop culture and especially 
rock and roll, hard rock culture? I think personally, for all the reasons that we've mentioned that have been out there, but also, for example, like I'll, I'll end my, my bit here on, um, there was a quote of his, and I thought anyone who's into rock music, they're all of a similar breed. You know, we're, like I said to you last time, Chris, you know, if you like, if you normally, if you like rock and roll, if you like rock and heavy rock, you like wrestling and you like ghosts. <laughs> They're the three things you can more or less count on. But here's one of his sayings, which I thought, if you read this as a child, you're going to say, yes, come on. One of his statements was, I was not content to just believe in Satan. I wanted to be his chief of staff. <laughs> wow. And you're like, you know, whoever's saying that, you're like, I want to read a bit more about him. Right. To be fair. <laughs> What's your last question? What's your favorite uh, Crowley influenced song? Um, it's a very good question, actually. Um, I'm going to say I'm going to be. I'm, I'm not going to be controversial. I'm going to be polemetic or whatever. <laughs> polemically <else>. said. <laughs> polemically said. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say that I believe. I'm going to just put Black Star on when we finish this, and I think uh, it's still to be found. To be fair, you know, um, I never realized Black Star was the connection. So. I mean, obviously, to me, Mr. Crowley is the template, but Black Star, yeah. A, is, is it, 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 as a Crowley-influenced song, amazing. And if you guys are Bowie fans or even just fans of intriguing music, especially with the circumstances, uh, Black Star is one of the most riveting albums that, that I've ever heard. So Completely. Very, very cool stuff. Well, Kevin, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and you've always got great ideas for topics. You came up with the last one. You came up with this one. So when you get another... Uh, cool idea let's uh, let's get on and do it again certainly well thanks for your time chris been a pleasure as always cheers mate thank you see you now